In our story of David, we're going to look at a, a, honestly, just a strange and even a shocking story that has a very powerful lesson, every potential to change our lives. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 21, but I would just, I just encourage you not even to go there. This is a story told, and we'll get lost if we're fiddling around trying to follow along. I'm going to just tell you the story that I would like to, like think of it as a movie, and if I were directing the movie, I would start at the end. I'd start at the very end in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, and this is the prelude, and the scene opens in a province and also a capital city of that province called Gibeah. It's just north of Jerusalem. It's in the hills. And it's just before dawn. Gibeah. Gibeah of Saul. And this region is receiving the first rain it's had in three years. And as the sun comes up, the clouds part. And as they part, you see on the highest hill the silhouettes of seven men hanging or impaled, executed. And the people of Gibeah, <laughs> they've grown callous to seeing these corpses. They've been rotting for months. And there's a lesson there, though. Why were seven men publicly executed? And what lesson are they and their bodies trying to scream at us? Here's what happens. They're going to reveal to us an attribute or an attitude that Jehovah has, we're going to see a value and a powerful lesson to all who follow Christ, and that powerful lesson is quite likely to change our lives. That's how it ends. Here's how it begins. Act 1, a thousand years B.C., just a few months earlier. That was in June. This is maybe in April. And in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, we look at the land around us, and it is parched. It's West Texas dead. The ground is cracked. You could fall into the cracks themselves. And we're at the palace of David, and this is the context of, of our story. He says, and now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. Look, there's a drought and there's a famine but that's what happens in the Middle East. That's what the Middle East does, right? But this is different because it says, not like the other ones, it's been three years, year after year. And so David, the king, realizes, I think this is on the very hand of God doing this. So he, he's inspired to ask the Lord. And so the next verses say, and so David sought the face of Jehovah. And Jehovah said, there is, this, there is blood guilt on Saul and his house. Because he put the Gibeonites to death. It's the bloodlust of the first and former king, Saul. And when it says he put the Gibeonites to death, some of the translations will say that he destroyed them, he decimated, tried to wipe them out. And because of what Saul had done years before, all of Israel, the nation of Israel, is in a three-year famine. Everybody's paying. So you're thinking, well, who are the Gibeonites? <laughs> And why does God care so much about them? I mean, Saul has killed his thousands. We all know the song, Saul has killed his thousands. That's what kings do. That's why we needed a king in the first place. So if you look carefully at your Bibles in 2 Samuel chapter 21, particularly when it says the Gibeonites were been put to death by Saul, 
Look at the cross-reference there. You'll zoom in and it'll say, you need to go to Joshua chapter 9. That's Act 2. The year is 1500 B.C. It is 500 years earlier. And this is Joshua. So this is what's called the conquest period of time. And in this place, during this, Joshua and Caleb, he's leading a blitzkrieg across Canaan to take the land that was promised to Abraham. He's going to occupy that. The place where we're meeting here is a place called Gilgal. It's just west of the Sea of Galilee and just at the very top of the Dead Sea. I mean, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, just west of the Jordan River and to the top of the Dead Sea. And and that's base camp. When all of Israel comes over, they stop right there. That's where we're going to do all of our maneuvers. And inside the middle of that camp is a tent. And Joshua and Caleb are planning their next move. They've taken Jericho, it's leveled to the ground. AI, it's been defeated, absolutely destroyed. And now they're thinking, let's move west to the Mediterranean and then we'll divide and conquer and we'll take the land for the glory of God. Now, while all of that is happening in Gilgal, meanwhile, the coastal kingdoms, six of them, have conspired together to form a confederation. They're going to work together to fight Joshua because they know he's coming, and they don't have a chance to feed him by themselves. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what the west coast or on the coastal plain is going to do. But between Gilgal and the Mediterranean, the next stop is a region called Gibeah. It's a town, but it's also a region. And they're going to try a different strategy. Those villages put their leaders together, and the passage says, and they acted with cunning. They acted with cunning. The leaders say, look, here's what we're going to do. Pack up. We're going on a trip. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to saddle our tired donkeys with worn-out sacks for the donkeys. And then I want you to get wineskins, worn-out wineskins, those that have been torn and then patched over. I want you to get your shoes, go back to Goodwill, pick them up again. I want the worn out shoes. The clothes that you wear, they need to be you know, worn out. Four times, worn out is used. And he says, go into your hamper there, the stuff in the very back. Get some of that old, moldy, flaky, old bread. We're going to load that up. And then we're going to, our only hope is this. We can't beat them on a battlefield. Maybe we can beat them on a chessboard. Maybe we can outthink General Joshua. So they ride up to Gilgal from Gibeah. They ride up to Gilgal and they say to Joshua, hey, uh, we're from a far off country. Make a covenant with us Quit right now. And, he go, and so Joshua says, uh, wait a minute, uh, who, who are you? And what, if you live close, we're not going to make a covenant with you. And they said, but we're your servants. And Joshua says, yeah, but where, who are you and where are you from? And they respond by saying, we're from a very distant country, and, and, and we're, we're your servants, and we've heard about all of your exploits and how many victories you had. We heard about what happened in Egypt, how you defeated the Egyptians, and how you did all that really crazy great military stuff east of the, uh, of the Jordan River, you know. I mean, we don't know anything about any recent battles, you know, Jericho and Ai, because we're from a far-off land. <laughs> they don't even mention recent battles. And so we took a long journey, make a covenant with us. 
make a covenant with us. And then they go, look, look, look at the evidence. Look at our provisions. Look at the bread. It was right out of the oven when we left. And now look at it. It's flaky and dry, it says. Our wineskins were brand new and they were filled to the top. And now they're torn and patched. Look at our shoes and our clothing. They're also worn out. So make a covenant with us. The music changes. It becomes harrowing. Dun, 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 dun. And this is what happens. Joshua chapter 9, verse 14. And so the men took some of the provisions, you know, looking at the evidence. But they did not ask counsel from Jehovah. And Joshua made peace with them. And he made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation as well swore to them. Two points of interest. One was Joshua did not consult the Lord on this. And the second one is they made a covenant with the Gibeonites. So let's look at the word covenant. Covenant is an agreement between two people. It can be pretty simple. It's a contract in some respects, a covenant or a contract between two people. But what makes a difference is there's an appeal to a higher source to enforce or to ensure that all the promises are made. Sometimes it was the local mayor. Sometimes it's the king himself. But in a covenant with God, you swear to God, you swear to Jehovah that you will fulfill all the promises that you make. And that's what we're talking about here. Joshua says, I swear to Jehovah, we will let you live. That's what happens. Three days later, the front of Israel is moving to the west and the next town they come to is Gibeah. And all the Gibeonites are out there. They run out to meet them. Hey, hi, Joshua. Remember us? Waving their contract. Remember the covenant you made with us? Yeah. And so the soldiers are arming up and say, let's destroy these people. And here's the line. It says, no, 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 we can't because we have made a covenant. We swore to Jehovah not to touch them. Let them live, lest the wrath be upon us because we made an oath to Jehovah. The soldiers are not amused. They are mad. And Joshua goes and sits down with the leaders of Gibeah and said, Why? Why did you lie to us and tell us that you're from a far-off country? <laughs> and they just said, really? He said, we're going to make you our servants. You're going to be forever. You're going to be our woodcutters and our water haulers. And they said, okay, yeah, because you were going to kill us. You, were, you could not be defe defeated. The hand of God is upon you. So our only hope was to become woodcutters and water haulers and we're okay with that because now we get to live and then they find they end with this but behold in your hands we have placed your fate do what is right in your own eyes and Joshua said oh man he knows he can't do anything because he has made a covenant before God and so this scene ends with the Gibeonites cutting wood and hauling water with a little smirk on their face because they outwitted this master general. And they were going to be in the protective custody of Israel forever. That's who the Gibeonites are. That's Act chapter 2. Let's go to Act chapter 3. We're back now at the palace 
500 years later, 1,000 BCs, BC, and David realizes what's happening. Remember what we call Saul? Gibeah of Saul. Saul of Gibeah. He grew up in Gibeah. Gibeah is part of the Benjamin area. The Benjamites lived there. That's where Saul spent his life. That's where he even ran his kingdom often. He was in, he was in Gibeah under a tree. And he grew up with these woodcutters and these water haulers everywhere with a smirk all the time. Those people were the stench of his town. And when he became king, what's the purpose of power unless you're going to abuse it? And so he starts slaughtering the Gibeonites to rid the land of them. It says, and he struck them down with zeal. And so David goes to the leaders of the Gibeonites. Now he's realizing... And he says, what can we do to atone for what the house of Saul has done so that you may bless Jehovah? And the Gibeonite leaders say, look, we, as far as atonement goes, it's not about gold and silver. Our problem is with the house of Saul. And David says, okay, what do you want me to do? And here's their answer. And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all of the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that, they may, so that they, uh, we may hang them before Jehovah at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen one of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them to you. And so now at high noon on the highest hill in the hill country of Gibeah, all the Gibeon townspeople gather together to see the righteousness of God, the justice of God be shown on that hilltop where it says, and the seven men perished together. The seven men hung together. Other translations, the seven men were impaled together. The point, here's it. It is a solemn ritual act of execution imposed for the breach of a covenant. Yeah, it's an execution. It's a public execution. And because of that, the atonement was made. And the last sentence in our story here is this. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And it began to rain again. That's how our story starts. Those seven men on the hill. And so what's the obvious application for our learning time today? Don't go killing Gibeonites. <laughs> Not even if you're king. I bet there's something bigger there than that. Let me summarize. Seven men are publicly executed for a covenant that was made 500 years earlier, and that covenant was based upon a lie. This is the cost of crossing even a careless covenant. The powerful lesson is God's view of a covenant. The powerful lesson is this. God's view of a covenant, a covenant, a promise made between two people where they appeal to God to be the enforcer of the promises that each one makes. Can you think of a covenant that we might involve ourselves in today? Let's see if this helps bring something to mind. You swear to Jehovah to judge over you. Jack, Jill, would you please turn and face one another? And Jack, repeat after me. I, Jack, take you, Jill, to be my wedded wife. 
to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Jill, you repeat after me. And then after that, there's an appeal to the audience, and it goes like this. As witnesses, I charge you all to hold Jack and Jill to the vows of this covenant that they have made before God and before man today. Is there a sign of the covenant that you're making? Because throughout the Bible, the Lord always leaves us with a reminder, with a sign. Oh, they have chosen rings. And let the purity of the metal that's been refined by fire represent the purity of the love they have for one another and the love that God has for them. Jack, take this ring and place it on Jill's finger and repeat after me. I give you this ring as a symbol of my lifelong commitment to you. With all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jill? Yeah. Yes. Our marriage vows are a covenant before God where we call upon him to oversee and enforce and to keep us true to our words. And I must say, 38 years of marriage, when you say and when you hear those words in the vows, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> am I right? Right? Can I hear an amen? amen? Yeah. I mean, sure. For better, yeah, that is going to be awesome. For worse, hmm. But when we love our mate in the worse, that's when we honor the marriage covenant. For richer, I can live with that. But for poorer, that's when we worship God by showing our commitment to the covenant promises that we made in his name. In sickness, you mean like cold and flu? Well, yes, but a lot more than that. And when a mate cares and serves and loves and becomes a medical technician in ways that they never thought they could or ever wanted to, when that happens, that's when you're becoming like Christ in your marriage covenant. I thought one of the applications we could have for today is those of you that have been married for some time, maybe in the next two days, just sit across the table or next to each other and maybe inventory the times that your mate has fulfilled the vows of their marriage covenant. Remember the time we were really poor and you never held it against me? Remember the time we were really sick and you cared and nurtured me? I think it'd be a good thing to just encourage one another in how you've practiced the marriage covenant and honored that and maybe that could inspire you to go forward in the same way. The marriage vows are a covenant before the Lord. And is it any wonder when Jesus talks about the marriage covenant, he says, it is very difficult to dissolve this union. There are a few exceptions, but you made promises. You asked God to oversee this. Careful. I think a second way that we don't honor, I mean, the second application is how we don't honor our marriage vows, is when we put something or someone in front of that covenant. Something or someone is more important than your mate. I remember when I was in my mid-30s to early 40s, I, 
I, admittedly, those are the grinding years of life in a lot of different ways, but particularly in careers, and that was the case here, and I was working all the time. And, and Melinda was trapped because, you know, I was, I was serving the Lord and his church, which she, she can't complain too loud, but she was clearly not first. And I, I say that because I didn't know what to do because the demands that were uh, that I had, and then, and, and then the vows that I had made, and so I sought out wisdom of four men that had spent some time with me that were considerably older and knew what to do, and so one of them said this that I felt particularly insightful. He said, look, she knows, Melinda knows, that these are the grinding years, and it's not that you're spending too much time at work, it's that work is first. And once she finds out that work or that she is first and work is second, she won't be nearly as upset with your time away. It's who's first in your life. Who's the love, who's the first love of your life? A mate should never feel jealous about your career because you're responsible for your work ethic to God. You're responsible to God for that. But she never made a covenant with God about your work ethic. And oddly enough, because those are difficult years, I felt jealous towards my children. I, I felt like I was not first in Melinda's life. And we had to sit down and say, what can we do <laughs> to help you convince me that I'm first in your life? We worked through that, but I needed, I needed to know that. And and a person should never feel jealous towards their family, towards their children. Because while we're responsible for our children unto the Lord, we never swore a covenant to God in the context of a, like our marriage vows. So our marriage vows are a covenant before God. And is it any wonder here at Grace Covenant Church that we look at our marriage vows and say, how can we help people become like Christ in their marriage? Our premarital counseling ministry, if you're not married yet and you're looking to get engaged, you should get involved in this. We, for 20 years, we wrote, we wrote our own curriculum. It didn't seem like other, but there was a source or a resource available, so we, we did our own. And now there's some better curriculum out there. We're doing that. We have a ministry called Reengage, And you know why? Because we value the marriage covenant. And we want people to become like Christ in their marriage vows. And we have people that work there to serve the other people that are coming. Our adult Sunday school classes, our various Bible studies, work in curriculum so that we can honor our marriage covenants. And so I think even today, one of, the, one of the assets that we have at Grace Covenant Church that is absolutely priceless is this. We have multi-generational wisdom cascading down. And if you've been married for more than eight years, you could be a premarital counselor. You and your husband or you and your wife could team up. Our, marriage, our premarriage counseling is, is better than professional counseling, and here's why. Because professional counseling and doing premarital counseling, they might say more better stuff, but after the last lesson, you're done. At Grace, you become connected to your premarital counselor. You might become friends, mentors for life 
And that shows itself to be a stronger influence over time. Why don't you consider, do not get engaged, do not get married without premarriage counseling. Why don't you, might maybe some of you could consider joining our premarriage ministry. Our re-engage ministry is cascading wisdom, generational wisdom. If you've been married for a certain amount of time, not too many years, and you want to go to re-engage and learn what they have, and then maybe circle back around and become a giver. Why don't you consider being involved in our marriage ministries and then mentoring in our marriage ministries because that's the power of what we have going at Grace Covenant Church is so many different ages that have so many different stories about how to, how to win in the marriage and also how not to lose, let's put it that way, and how not to lose, <laughs> how not to put work or children in front of your mate. The marriage vows are a covenant before God. That's a lesson in this 2 Samuel chapter 21. But here's another one that I go to quite frequently. Remember, the lesson is, the, is God's view of a covenant. God's, the powerful lesson here that can change our lives is God's view of a covenant. And I go to this passage and another one in Genesis, Genesis to remind myself of the salvation covenant. The salvation a covenant that that we have before God, where God makes, if you understand the salvation covenant, that if we sincerely accept what he's promising to us, that he can and will completely dissolve us of our previous sins by covering them with his blood, and then give us his righteousness, we inherit his righteousness, and he proves that by his death and resurrection on the, uh, from the cross. If we just honestly and sincerely receive that, if you understand the the salvation covenant, and then God's commitment to covenant, the salvation covenant is God is the only one making promises. God swears by his, it's kind of funny, God swears by his own name. He goes through and he says, I swear to myself, I swear by my own name that you are mine. And I love the lesson here in God's commitment to his covenant because it stabilizes where I'm putting my hope. Not on my conduct or not on my whimsical commitment levels that vacillate, but on his promise and his promise alone. This also comes up when, you know, being in, in, in a church this big and for this many years, we, I, I've seen some some beautiful children give their lives over to Christ and, and teenage years they express that and then sometimes they go off and they play the prodigal son, prodigal daughter, and in their prodigal the story ends too soon and it's in the midst of that that their lives are lost. And so often people that don't understand the power of covenant start doubting and they start wondering and they go well what's gonna like who's he where how's this end and where's he gonna be and what's and I just go back to this I go like what are we looking for that person's conduct or God's commitment to covenant that God is the promise keeper his words will never fail it's a grace covenant Will someone name a church after that? Anyone? It's a grace covenant. 
And he swore by his own name that he would give us this gift of salvation. So, we forget that. Like the storms of life, we take our eyes off the lighthouse that's stable and true, and we look at the waves around us, and we start to panic. We, we, we become victims like a flag flapping around to whatever the wind is blowing us instead of focusing on the promises of God, the pole that never move, they never fail. We are fragile souls. We forget God's commitment to covenant and the details of the covenant that he made with us, the promises that he made. And when Jesus was here, he made promises about our past, about our present, and about our future. He said, listen, your past is gone. You are a new creature. He says in our presence, I will, in our present, he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And then he makes a promise to our future and he says, I will return. It will not be in a manger. I won't be riding a donkey. I'll be riding a war horse, and I come and will return to bring justice. I will bring justice. And the oppressed will finally be set free, and the poor will be made well, and there won't be any more tears. Those are the promises that Jesus made, and he swore by his own name. And yet we keep forgetting. And so Jesus, in his mercy, says, can I help you remember could I give you a, a symbol of the covenant? Yeah, we'd like that. And so he gives us the Lord's table. Where he reminds us of the promises that he's made about our past, our present, and our future. And my friend Jason Jupe is going to lead us in that after our prayer time. I hope you had a life-changing lesson today about God's view of covenant. I hope that it affects maybe your future marriage or your current one. And I hope sincerely that it radically alters the way you view your salvation. God made promises, and you didn't. You just received them. And he's the promise keeper, and his words never fail. Let's praise God for that. Lord, Holy Father, we are grateful that you have laid out such a strange story in holy writ that we might know your value of covenants, what you mean, and what it says to us. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us apply this passage in our lives this very day, and maybe the way we've been neglecting our promises that we made on that wedding day, that we might fulfill them as being selfless, and sacrificial in our love for our mate, like we promised, like we swore to you we would do. Lord, I'd ask that you would give us the ability to courageously encourage our mates when, we, when they are loving us in the way that they promised, that that might inspire them to become like Christ in our marriage vows. Lord, I especially ask that you would return this somewhat strange story to have this powerful lesson so that our lives might be changed by your grace covenant relationship with us. You swore by your name, Jehovah God, that you would save us if we sincerely received by faith the promise of Christ's death and resurrection, the redemption of sins, and the giving of righteousness. We celebrate who you are and not who we are. We celebrate you as the rock. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.